is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. I want to say hi to uh, everybody here in this room and hi to folks at all of our sites around the Bay Area, uh, everybody joining us online. I'm so glad you're here, particularly for this message. Uh, this is a time when we'll think about uh, ultimate issues, life and death, and people will wonder sometimes, what happens to a person when you die? Honestly, does anybody really know? The old story, a woman is moving her business to a new location, and so she throws a big celebration to thank her old customers, and she orders a huge bouquet of flowers, but the florist gets her event mixed up with a funeral. And she ends up with a huge flower arrangement that says, we're so sorry for your loss. And she's not pleased about this and complains to the florist. And he says, you think you have problems? I have to talk to a family that had a funeral with huge flowers that said, good luck in your new location. <laughs> you have to think about that for a moment. And that's kind of the big question. Is there going to be a new location? And are you going to want to be there? Good luck with that. That's the big question, really, kind of ultimate question that we face. Is there going to be a new location? And we see something like the burning of the Notre Dame Cathedral, and we wonder, does anything really last? Or we wake up this morning, many of you know, and find out about uh, over 200 people in Sri Lanka that gathered together to celebrate worship like we're doing, and were killed, were murdered. And we wonder... Will our poor, bleeding world ever find justice? Will it ever find peace? And so we remember now an ancient custom on every Easter around continents, cultures, languages, people gather in a moment like this, and someone will stand up and say, Jesus Christ is risen, and then people will respond, He is risen indeed. And it's that little word that I want to talk about for a couple of minutes, because we live in a world where that world might seem kind of a stretch, for sure, no doubt, absolutely, it's true. There is a new location, risen indeed. And maybe for you, that word is really a stretch. Maybe, if you were going to be honest about it, you're kind of here to make somebody else in the family happen that want, happy that wanted you to be here. Or maybe you used to be a Christian, but your sense of faith has been ebbing. Maybe you admire Jesus, think his teachings are wonderful, but the idea of a human being being resurrected strikes you as just probably wishful thinking. And I'm so glad you're here. And the first thing I want you to know is that thoughtful people have wrestled with this idea of resurrection from the very beginning of when it first got announced. In fact, that struggle is why the most famous and influential longest passage on hope and the resurrection in the Bible ever got written by Paul to this church at Corinth. Here's part of what Paul wrote. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, again, he's writing to people inside the church. Uh, they love God. They want to follow Jesus. But they find the idea of resurrection not to be credible. And so he teases out the implications of this. Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless, so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, that is, died in Christ, are lost without hope. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, to be most pitied, because we're just deluded. 
And then he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. And that's where we get that little word, indeed. Not just Christ has been raised, Christ has been raised indeed. In the Greek language in which Paul writes, that word indeed is the first word in the sentence just to make it emphatic. Paul is betting the farm on this. He's taking everything on this. So I want to look this Easter at two questions. First, why did Paul say indeed? Why were he and others so convinced? Why? And then second, why does this matter so much? Why would Paul and others in that early movement gladly stake their lives on this truth? And what does this mean for you? Now, what's important about the first question is a lot of folks in our day kind of assume that people 2,000 years ago were pre-scientific and therefore probably gullible and naive, and so they were immediately ready to believe the story of the resurrection because you could convince people back then of anything. In actual fact, it's good for us all to know, it didn't happen that way at all. Actually, initially, everybody was skeptical and nobody believed it. The first witnesses were some women who followed Jesus, and they went to the tomb on Easter morning, not because they were expecting a resurrected body. They went there planning to anoint, care for a dead body. The stone was gone, and an angel said to them, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. And they didn't respond immediately. Yes, of course, indeed, great. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That very first announcement, Jesus Christ is risen, did not get easily given faith. It received confusion, fear, and silence. And then they told the disciples about the angel's words. And here's the disciples' response. The disciples did not believe the women because the women's words seemed to them like nonsense. And these are the disciples Jesus had been teaching for all these years. By the way, is this the first time a group of men stubbornly refused to listen to a group of women? No, it is not. By the way, one of the reasons why, whatever you think of the story of the resurrection, one of the reasons why it's very difficult to believe that somebody just made it up, is that in that culture, in that day, women were not regarded as credible witnesses. In fact, very often in courts of law, women were not allowed to give testimony because they were not regarded as credible or believable. So nobody would have made up a story about a resurrection. Nobody would have made up a story and then said that women were the first and primary witnesses of the resurrection. However, in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are told explicitly that women were the first and primary witnesses of the resurrection. The only reason to be told that detail is that's the way it happened. But the skepticism initially actually kept going. This is from the Gospel of John. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, With the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. In other words, now even at the end of the first Easter, all the events that had gone on, the disciples were not walking around saying, risen indeed, risen indeed. To their own embarrassment, all of the New Testament gospels record the disciples and others' skepticism and slowness to believe. They were skeptical for the same reason that we would be. They knew, like we do, corpses don't 
reanimate. You don't expect to find life in a dead body. My first boss, Pastor John Anderson, had a great sense of humor. And he told me years ago, he did a funeral in rural Minnesota where he was serving at the time. And after the service, he drove home with the hearse driver. He was tired, so he stretched out and took a nap in the back of the hearse. <laughs> kind of a creepy place to take a nap. And the driver needed gas at one point, so I went to the station. He was inside, so an attendant was filling the hearse up when John woke up, knocked on the window, and waved at the <laughs> service station guy. John said he never saw anyone run so fast his whole life long. See, even in the ancient world, as pre-scientific as people were, people noticed that dead people tend to remain dead. We are not the first people in the history of the human race to discover that. And so it took two realities to convince very skeptical people, the women, the disciples, and others, that this Jesus was risen indeed. Uh, the first reality is the tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away. But of course, it could just be that somebody had taken the body, or that maybe he just hadn't really been dead. So secondly, the report that spread was not simply about where Jesus wasn't. It's about where Jesus was. He was with Mary, telling her not to be afraid. He was with Thomas, telling him, you don't have to doubt anymore. My hands, my side. He was with Peter, who had denied him three times, saying, you don't have to live in your guilt and failure anymore. He was with the disciples, who were unspeakably discouraged, saying, you don't have to give up. One day he came to the Apostle Paul. Now, when Paul first heard about people going around saying, Jesus is risen, Paul's a very bright man. He was not some gullible rube who immediately responded, he's risen indeed. In fact, Paul was very much convinced that the story of the resurrection was a hoax and a lie, and Paul spent considerable time and energy actually persecuting the people who tried to spread it, until one day when Jesus, the risen Jesus, came to Paul and changed his life and then the world. See, Jesus was not in the tomb, but it's like he was everywhere else. And you could have said that it was grave robbers, except he keeps appearing to people. You could have said those appearances were hallucinations, except the tomb was empty. It was the combination of the empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus together that led those early followers to realize something unprecedented, unbelievable had simply happened that changed everything. And actually, there's no other good, credible way to explain the sudden explosive emergence of the church. People going from frightened and discouraged and hiding in rooms with doors locked because of fear to people courageously and joyfully going to their death in the service of this man. One of the ways Christianity is unique among religions, as far as I know, is we know the day that it started. That's not true for any other faith. It's very significant. As great a teacher as Jesus was, nobody said, we got to start a new religion to spread these stories of the prodigal son and the good Samaritans and so on. On Saturday, the day after this man was crucified, Christianity did not exist. On Sunday, it did. On Saturday, as a matter of historical record, no human being could have started it. By Sunday night, no human being could have stopped it. There's only one explanation that made sense. Jesus Christ is risen, indeed. But gang, it's not just that this is true. It's truth matters. 
I'm here to tell you it matters more than anything else in the world matters. It matters because what it means is that Jesus was right. That he knew what he was talking about, about God and about God's love. And that if you trust this Jesus, if you follow him, nothing can separate you from the love of God, no matter how bleak or dark it is. Ultimately, you have nothing to fear. And this is why Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is futile. Anybody who's ever preached on Easter can relate to what Paul is saying. Trying to get an Easter message right because of the weight of this event uh, is a daunting thing. I was working on this one, and I was feeling that pressure, kind of anxious that I might not get a message that was up to par this Easter until I went back and read some of my old Easter messages and realized they were not all that great either. And it kind of made me feel better because the Easter message is really very simple. Jesus Christ who died for your sins, who died to express the sacrificial love and mercy and grace of God on a wooden cross so that sin and death and guilt and hell might be defeated, that Jesus is risen. Now, if that's not true, if Jesus has not been raised, if his body still lies moldering in a tomb somewhere, doesn't matter at all how clever the preaching in any church is, there is no real hope. There is no new location. But if it is true, then the preaching is not futile, no matter how inadequate it might be. Because the task of this message is not to persuade or inspire or challenge or change hearts. Only God can do that. It is simply to point to this one great fact, this one great hope, the only foundation that any human being can face life with or face death with. Jesus Christ is risen. And he's still risen. The tomb was empty. He was not there, but thank God he's here. And the most important thing we're doing with our present life is preparing for the life that is to come. Good luck with your new location. Some people don't believe in the resurrection because they think it's just wishful thinking. It's just something people want to believe that you go on after you die. But, you know, wishful thinking cuts both ways. A lot of people do not wish for the existence of a God before whom I'll have to give an account. There's a philosopher whose writings I like quite a lot, Thomas Nagel. He is not a believer, and he puts this issue like this. Nagel wrote, I want atheism to be true, and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It is just as irrational to be influenced by one's beliefs Uh, by one's beliefs by the hope that God does not exist as by the hope that God does exist. And honestly, sometimes people hope that there is no God because if there is a God, that's going to be kind of an inconvenient truth. That's going to interfere with my life. A pastor I know was studying the Bible for an Easter sermon in a restaurant one time and a young woman looked over and saw what he was doing and asked, why are you reading that? Like, why would an educated person in a modern day be reading that ancient book? And uh, he's kind of an edgy guy and decided to give a provocative response to see if it would spark a conversation. So he looked back and said, because I don't feel like going to hell when I die. (laughs) And she thought, well, that's kind of an interesting response. And so she said, there's no such thing as heaven or hell. And he thought, well, this is going to be kind of interesting. And he asked, why do you say that? She said, everybody knows when you die, your candle just goes out. Poof. You mean there's no afterlife? No. 
So that means you must just be able to live as you please. That's right. Like, no judgment day or anything? No. He said, well, that's fascinating to me. Where'd you hear that? She said, I read it somewhere. Can you give me the name of the book? I don't recall. Can you give me the name of the author of the book? Forgot his name. Did the author write any other books? I don't know. Is it possible that your author changed his mind two years after he wrote this particular book and then wrote another book and said, there is a heaven and hell? Is that possible? I don't know. It's possible, not likely. All right, let me get this straight. You are rolling the dice on your eternity, predicated on what someone you don't even know wrote in a book you cannot even recall the title of. Have I got that right? She looked back, that's right. He said, you know what I think, my friend? I think you have merely created a belief that guarantees the continuation of your unencumbered lifestyle. I think you made it up, because it's very discomforting to think of a heaven. Very discomforting thought to think of a hell. It is very unnerving to face a holy God in the day of reckoning. I think you made it all up. And then they had a real interesting conversation after that. Really interesting. What do I roll the dice on? Good luck in your new location. You know, here's where the Easter story gets real personal and, and, and actually quite costly. Paul believed that the reason the resurrection matters so much is that Jesus is still in the resurrection business. But just as it was with Jesus, so for you and me, the resurrection and the cross go together. Easter is not just about resurrection. It's about the resurrection of a crucified man. And what that means for me is I have to die to some stuff. I had to die to my old way of life, to some old habits, to some sin, to my ego, before I get raised up. Paul said it like this in this uh, letter he wrote to Corinth. What you sow, like a little seed, your life, does not come back to life until it dies. And we see this. An addict is hopelessly enslaved by her addiction. It's just killing her. And then one day she surrenders, turns her life and her will over to God. And that sobriety is a resurrection. It's a miracle. I've seen marriages get resurrected. I've seen families get resurrected. I've seen people in despair get resurrected. I've seen people that face cancer I've seen people that face death. I've seen people in a hospital room laying in a bed that they will never get out of get resurrected. I've, seen, I've written to people in prisons where they're in a cell and they haven't been out of it for years and God comes into that cell and there's a little resurrection. So where does God want to do a resurrection in you? I want to invite you to watch this story and as you're watching to kind of keep a little prayer conversation going with God and ask this question, God, where do you want to do a resurrection in my life? Take a look. We're going to go to open share now. Would anybody like to share? I'll share. Okay. Hi, my name is Titus and I'm an alcoholic. I've been thinking uh, a lot about how I ended up here. I wrote some things down. I'm not a good speaker, so. Power, control, these things always meant so much to me. 
been that way as long as I can remember. Striving to get better, be better, have more. So clever in my attempts to gain clout and recognition. Without doubt, my sole mission was to be someone worthy, important. And I was there where I always wanted to be. On top at long last. But the higher the climb, the greater the crash. instant I went from a person who had a grip on life to no one. I lost it all. Too quick to realize what even happened. Even thinking about it now, it's like slipping in and out of a bad dream. My feet found themselves struggling to support my body as the foundation beneath me warped and distorted and devoured me fast enough to cause panic, slow enough to let the terror grow and mature forming a bad dream to a monstrosity. Then with a wave of consciousness, time no longer shifts forward, but stands still. I saw flashes of light, my memories, my life in single shots. Sinking deeper still. As snapshots from my past continue to flash. I notice an image of my family. Their faces staring back at me. Your father has a love for the I see their eyes fill with sorrow and fear, but not with fear for me. They didn't see me sinking. Confused, I catch a glimpse, a reflection of myself as I gaze in their eyes. Immediately, water fills within mine. I am the monstrosity. And they're right. I am when left to my own vices. Falling into submission every time, not willingly, but so willingly. Submerging into an unquenchable dead sea, full but with no life. At that moment, all I wanted was a reset button. I longed to replace the sweet taste of shame with something that could quench my need to release this pain. Desperate to breathe, free of this daunting pressure on my chest. And all I could see was that I had nothing. There was no one left. <gasps> Have you ever just felt like you were drowning? In a sea where the waters are a mix of regret and confusion, but a sea is so real that day-to-day -day life feels like the illusion. And one day, out of the blue, you pulled to shore and <gasps> you could breathe again. and breathe again, y'all. I met someone who brought me back. I met a man who died for me. I never knew him, but he knew me. I wasn't looking for him, but he found me. It was a trip. It's like one day I'm dying, not even aware that one day this man died for me. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. The way he knew my whole life, said that he loved me and actually proved it. It was crazy, but the kind of crazy that mass produces little tingles designed to travel the entirety of your body in preparation to receive something you have yet to experience. And yet I kept going back to the thought that one day a man died for me.
It's as if he grabbed onto my entire life, pulling me from drowning, placed a reset button within arm's reach, and with both of his hands ever so gently pushed me toward a new direction. The invitation to press into this restored existence stared me in the face with a smile of its own and a warmness I forgot existed. It's like nothing changed, but everything was new. I was the same, but finally myself. My life still bore the scars of my actions, but where there was confusion and regret, only a refreshed sense of hope was left. My life had crashed into some deep, dark waters. But one day, this, this man died for me. Free from my addiction and old ways of thinking, turning the stagnancy of death into a rushing river of life that pushed me along its currents, pulled me towards hope, the hope of a new beginning. Free from my addiction and old ways of thinking, hope to live alongside the ones that I love. And I have this hope now because one day, a man died for me. Anybody else like to share? I like to share. if you would bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. One day a man died for you. This man Jesus hung on a cross to pour out God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. And if you want to today, However far you have felt from God, whatever doubts or guilt you might bring, you can punch that reset button. You can do that right now. I want to invite you to simply pray this prayer from your heart. 
God, I confess my need for you. I repent of my wrongdoing, of my sin, of my brokenness. And I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me and give me a new start. And I declare my intent from this day forward as you help me to follow Jesus as the guide and friend and master of my life. And I promise you, I promise you, if you pray that prayer from the heart, God will honor that. And you have a hope in Him. God, I pray for everybody listening to these words that needs a resurrection. I pray for marriages. I pray for families. I pray for people in the grips of a depression or an addiction or a failure or a wound. I pray for every heart. I pray for every broken heart. I pray this in the power of the resurrected Jesus. Amen.